Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. We will begin in chapter 2 and verse 21. So Luke chapter 2 and verse 21, you'll find that on page 857 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we would love for you just to take that Bible in front of you as our gift to you this morning. It's good to be back with you. Uh, we had a nice uh, time away with with family. It was a, um, I wish I could say it was a restful time, but um, it was a, an exciting time for sure. And we had a wonderful time. I certainly am blessed by my brother Josh, who I know uh, gave a wonderful charge from God's word last week. And I'm very thankful for him. So we find ourselves here this morning in our study of Luke to Luke chapter 2 and verse 21. Hear now the word of God. And at the end of eight days, When he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And now, Father, we thank you for your word in which we can set our hearts upon. We come here with eager hearts and hungry souls that we might hear from our God through his word. We believe you are the God who has made us, the God who has redeemed us through the shed blood and the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, the God who would reveal himself to us, this little church, Hamilton Baptist Church, even now through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit. 
And so we ask that you would do that great work in our hearts, that you would draw us closer to you, that we might have a greater longing for you, that we might once again be awed over the fact that the war between us and you has ended, that our iniquity has been pardoned, that our sins have been taken from us, cast as far as the east is from the west, and that you now are our God and our Father through the work of Jesus Christ. We long to know you more, Father. We long to seek your Son with greater zeal and fervency. We long to obey you with greater passion and joy. And so now we come and with submissive hearts to sit under your word, asking you to teach us and conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. Charles Eliot was the president of Harvard University for 40 years, from 1869 to 1909. While he presided over Harvard, he transformed it from the small New England regional university that it was to the research university that we know today. It was in the summer of his 90th year after he had retired that he made his way slowly down from his cottage on the Northeast Harbor to his neighbors, the Peabody's. Mrs. Peabody greeted him warmly and invited him in. After a brief conversation, Dr. Elliot asked if he might hold her new baby. She was somewhat surprised at the request. And she lifted her infant son from the crib and laid him in the arms of this old and venerable Harvard president. And he just sat there for a number of minutes, not saying a word, staring at the baby. And finally, without a word of explanation, he offered her his thanks, and returned the baby to his mother. As he got up to leave, she, she wanted to know what this was all about, and so she inquired, uh, what, why, is, why is he here? Why did he want to hold her new son? And Dr. Elliot explained, I've been looking at the end of life for so long that I wanted to look for a few moments at its beginning. Life moves quickly, doesn't it? Welcome to 2015, by the way. Happy New Year. I don't know um, if it goes quickly for you, but it seems like 2014 was just here and is gone. I wonder how, how was 2014 for you? Um, how, how did you use that gift of God that He laid before you this year? I trust we all are not only another year older, but I hope uh, another year wiser that we were faithful stewards of that year, that we served our God faithfully and loved Him earnestly. I trust as well that this new year, as it comes upon us, we don't want to waste that. We understand that to be a gift from God as well, that He would long for us to be faithful stewards over the time and life in which He has given us. We, we don't want to waste 2015. We don't want to waste our lives. And I'm convinced, to be honest with you, that that a life will be easily be wasted if it is not lived intentionally, if there are not goals to strive for and dreams to, to live for, ambitions to reach after, direction to pursue. I, I'm convinced that I will not, for instance, be a successful father if I don't intend to be, 
If I don't work hard and plan and strategize and pray as to how I can be so. Or a successful husband. I want my wife to be cherished and nourished in our marriage. And I don't think that happens by accident. I think that happens by determination and intention. I want to be a successful pastor. I trust you want to be successful in your line of employment. Or even, if you will, if I could use this phrase, successful as a Christian. I want to be faithful to God and pray fervently and witness faithfully and obey passionately to Him. And I think all these things that we want to do will not happen by accident. I think we need to determine to be these kind of people. I think without that determination, we'll look back upon the last year or perhaps the, the last life that we had and see we, we just wasted it. Perhaps in front of a television, amusing ourselves or accumulating things that now are rubbish and cast aside. We've, um, my family and I, uh, we've been considering how it is we are going to live in 2015 and to, considering what we are going to resolve to do and to be in this coming year. And in, in thinking about that, I, I actually did a little bit of research as to the top 2014 resolutions. And to be honest, there's no surprise here. I bet if, I bet if you just said, I know the top, give me the top five resolutions, you probably get three or four of these. So the top five resolutions of 2014, number one, lose weight. Number two, become organized. Number three, manage your money or get out of debt. Number four, enjoy life. And number five, exercise more. In fact, Leger and I have been discussing this, and we announced to our children just a couple nights ago that 2015 is the year in which the Karn family gets healthy in which one of my children, without missing a beat, said, you say that every year. Right? <laughs> and this seems to be the common resolutions that we make. Right? You know what's interesting about these resolutions? They all have one thing in common, don't they? They're kind of different, but the one thing they have in common is they're all about me. They're, they're all about ourselves. Others are not mentioned. Certainly God doesn't make the list, does He? In fact, in my research, I never found a popular resolution of being kinder or serving more or maybe simply being a better friend. I wonder if being slender and debt-free and more organized is all there is to life or if there's something more, something that would give us greater joy, greater purpose. I'd like to present to you from God's Word this morning two alternatives. Two people who are both at the twilight of their lives and yet for a few moments with Jesus in their arms look at the beginning of life. The beginning, if you will, of eternal life. Two people that live with a goal to know the Lord deeper and to seek after Him with greater zeal to love God. We find them here in Luke chapter 2 in the temple. It's where we'll see Jesus in the next two stories in the Gospel of Luke. This time when He's 40 days old, The next time we'll see him as a 12-year-old boy. I think we can learn from these two individuals as examples of faith to us. And yet, Luke wants to do more than just put forth these examples. He wants us to, to understand as he continues to teach us who this child is, who Jesus is, and why, why he's worth living for, why he's worth waiting for. So I will simply want to work through this text verse by verse. In fact, I divide it up in four different scenes. You see the story begins in scene number one when Jesus is presented by his parents. Number one, Jesus is presented by his parents. Note verse 21. And at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. 
the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And what we're going to see in the next four verses are actually three rituals in which this family is undergoing. So three different rituals, all of them full of this wonderful irony. And the first we could call perhaps identification. That Jesus is being identified as a member of God's people through the ritual of circumcision. On the eighth day, God had declared from the time of Abraham that a Jewish son was to be circumcised. That is, the foreskin was to be cut away as a picture of the removal of sin. Of course, you understand the irony, therefore, that here's a boy who had no sin whatsoever and who would never have sin, and yet he is being identified as one of God's people. After he received the sign of circumcision, the sign of the covenant, he received his name, Jesus, which simply means God is salvation, or or more specifically, Yahweh saves, a name that was told both to Mary and Joseph by the angel. The second ritual we see is the ritual of purification. We find it in verse 22, and the Bible says, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now, this, this ritual of purification is not for Jesus. It's, it's actually for Mary. You see, Mary is now ceremonial unclean after birth. In fact, would be so for 40 days, unable to, for instance, to worship in the temple or to worship with God's people, and she would have to be purified. In order to be purified, she would present two offerings, one for her defilement and the second to restore communion with God. She would take them to the temple, hand them off to the priest, and the priest would take the sacrifice into the inner court. Mary would remain in the court of women. She would not be able to go into the inner court. Only men were allowed to. And there she would watch from a distance this priest sacrifice these animals in order to remove her ceremonial uncleanness. She would watch this smoke ascend to God as she is offered for these sacrifices offered for her purification. Now, what's noteworthy about her sacrifice is that the law said in order for a woman to be purified after childbirth, she needed to bring two offerings, one a lamb and the second a pigeon. Leviticus 12 tells us this. But note what Mary brought, according to verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. You see, Mary didn't bring a lamb and a pigeon. She brought two pigeons. There was actually an exception given in God's law that if you were unable to afford a lamb, you could instead bring instead of bringing a lamb and a pigeon, you could bring two pigeons or two turtle doves. This was a technical offering called the offering of the poor. And so we gain some insight, don't we, as to Mary and Joseph's economic status. They were poor. I, I, I trust they wanted to bring a lamb. I trust they would have delighted to give God their best. It seems to me that the wise men had not yet come. Clearly, they would have paid for a lamb with the gold in which they had deposited. And, and so they came unable to bring the lamb for the sacrifice. Of course, the, the wonderful irony is that she indeed did bring a lamb. She was holding him in her arms. For John the baptizer would point at Jesus some 30 years later and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Mary stood in the court of women watching the smoke of her sacrifice ascend to heaven, holding the very Lamb of God who would truly and forever purify her of all her uncleanness. The third ritual we see is the ritual of presentation. 
We also saw this in verse 22 when the Bible tells us when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem, note this, to present him to the Lord. He's going to be presented to God. This will be done with every firstborn male. In fact, verse 23 explains, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So the the firstborn son is holy to the Lord. That is set apart for God, belongs to God. Exodus 13 tells us, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine, says the Lord. And so they're taking Jesus to present him to God, which I think is just wonderful. Can you not imagine them there in the temple saying, okay, God, we would like to introduce you to Jesus, and we want you to know he belongs to you. You almost think God up there saying, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And, and so here they are bringing Jesus to, to the Lord. Now, if you would, you would do this not only with a, with a son, you would do this with an animal. So if your, your heifer has her first calf, you would bring that calf to the temple and that calf would be holy to the Lord, belong to the Lord. And you, of course, would leave that animal there at the temple. And they would be sacrificed and consumed by the priests. And this is how they ate. This is how they were paid through these sacri- sacrifices. Well, what do you do if it's your son? He belongs to God. What do you do with him as you bring him to the temple and declare he belongs to you? Well, you actually redeem your son from God. You buy your son back. Numbers chapter 18 says, Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall redeem, and a firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. And their redemption price, and a month old you shall redeem them. You shall fix at five shekels of uh, silver. And so that you would buy them back from God. You would pay what's called the redemption tax or the redemption of the firstborn. And so Mary and Joseph come to the temple saying, God is our firstborn son. He belongs to you. But then they buy him back from God. They are literally redeeming the Redeemer. This is the one who has come to buy a people for God and they are buying Jesus back from God. And so there they are paying their, their five silver, uh, shekels of silver in order to purchase Jesus back from God. Now, I don't know if you notice in all these rituals, there's a reoccurring theme. You know, look at verse 22, for instance. They did what was according to the law of Moses. You notice that phrase again in verse 23, as it is written according to the law of the Lord. And, and again, even in verse 24, and uh, according to what is said in the law of the Lord. As we read on in this text, we'll note verse 27, when the parents brought uh, in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. And for good measure, note verse 39, which we'll consider God willing next week. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee. I want you to understand what Mary and Joseph are doing is they are doing what God had told them to do. They are obeying God. Now, everyone who has children or or nephews and nieces or even grandchildren, we want to do all we can for our children. We want to be good parents, don't we? Especially for our firstborn, right? If you're firstborn, right, the nursery's already set up and the walls are painted and you got the crib there and the changing table there and the little Noah mobile over the crib so that they can be reminded of the wrathfulness of God when he killed everything on the earth while they sleep, right? And so we we, we do everything for these children, right? We, We want to 
be good parents. We hold them and feed them and burp them and we change their diapers. Well, I want you to understand that Mary and Joseph aren't simply interested in being good parents. They're interested in being godly parents. They want to do exactly what God has called them to do as parents. They want to raise their son in a way that he understands and knows God. We too, I trust, want to be godly parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles. We want not just take care of their needs, but pray for them and sing with them and read scripture with them and take them to God's people to worship God. See, what a child needs is not simply onesies and booties and and buggies and trundle bundles and whatever else we give them these days. They, They need a mom and a dad who love Jesus, don't they? They need a mom and dad who love each other and love their God. That's what Jesus got. He got godly parents. And here they are following God, and we expect once they're finished for them to slip out unnoticed except for this old guy running up to them. As we note, scene two, Jesus revealed by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. We don't know much about Simeon. We don't know his background or uh, what he did, perhaps, in his earlier days for a living. But we do know his spiritual condition. The Bible tells us that he was righteous and that he was devout. In fact, he addresses God with a very interesting word there in verse 29. You know that? He says, Lord, right? He begins his prayer and says, Lord. It's not the typical word that we see almost always in the Bible for Lord. It's the word kurios. He actually uses a different word. It's the word despotes, where we get the word despot. Maybe your translation says sovereign Lord. Of course, he's not referring to God in a, in a wicked sense, but back in that day, the, a despot wasn't a tyrant, but someone who had absolute authority. And Simeon understood his relationship with God as one in which he belonged to God. He was God's bond slave. I belong to you. He is my despot, if you will. He was my sovereign Lord. We also know that he was waiting for the Messiah. Or as Luke puts it, perhaps quoting from Isaiah 40, the consolation of Israel. And lastly, we know that the Holy Spirit was on him. In fact, the Holy Spirit had given him a promise according to verse 26. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so God told Simeon that before he died, he would see the Messiah with his own eyes. We're not sure what other information God gave to Simeon. It seems like he didn't give him much information other than this great promise. And so Simeon has this promise and now he's waiting. We don't know how long he waited, but it seems like he waited a pretty long time because he's going to begin to pray and says, now I'm ready to die. It almost seems as if he's a very old man, perhaps waiting his whole life. In my mind's eye, I imagine Simeon for years walking the courtyards of the temple, watching parents bring up their children to be presented to God. And and I, I imagine him walking up to some of these parents and startling them a little bit as he pulled back the baby clothes and peered into the tiny face to see if this one happened to be the Messiah. How many times did poor Simeon walk away disappointed? No, not that one. No, not that one. No, not again. Until one grand day, just as God had promised him, a baby came. The Holy Spirit announced in verse 27, that is the one. For the word says, and he came in the spirit of the temp- into the temple. And the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of God. You see, the Holy Spirit resided on Simeon according to verse 25. He made him a promise according to verse 26. And finally, in verse 27, he reveals that's the baby. And so here's Mary and Joseph, these very young parents, come to present and to redeem baby Jesus. A common sight. 
You know, everyone would have ignored them. There would be hundreds of people doing this, especially they would ignore the poor, except for Simeon. This old man runs up to them with a face lit with rapturous joy and, and I like to imagine snatches the baby right out of Mary's arms. Or we see in verse 20, 28, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, he, he has been revealed that this is the Messiah, that this, as verse 25 said, the consolation of Israel. This is what Simeon had hoped for. In fact, Isaiah 40 says of the Messiah, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. That's what Simeon longed for. He longed for the war between man and God to end. He longed for iniquity to be pardoned. And the Holy Spirit came and revealed him to Simeon that the comfort has finally come. That a, a, a weary and, and guilty people, you can now announce to me that, that war is over, reconciliation has come, forgiveness is here. He was revealed by the Spirit of God. I wonder if Jesus has been revealed to you by God's Spirit. I think He must do so in order for you to understand who Jesus is. He did so in Simeon's life. Has He done that for you, friend? It's the Holy Spirit every laid upon your heart that that Jesus is the one. He is the promised Messiah, Christ the Lord, who has come to save a people for Himself. Have you responded to Him? Have you lifted Him up in faith and joy? Simeon did. Simeon understood this. In fact, for my Christian brothers and sisters, do you see God's faithfulness to Simeon? He'll even note it in verse 29 when he says, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Sometimes we think about God's faithfulness in kind of grand cosmic scale, like God made a promise a thousand years ago and fulfilled it. But God is also faithful within our life. God makes his promises throughout his word and he intends to keep them. Do you note that? Do you understand that God is faithful to you or are you just too preoccupied with the uncertainties of tomorrow? I think so often we get concerned as to how we're going to manage our life or overcome the troubles in which we have. And staring off into the uncertain future, we forget a past of faithfulness in which God has never let a promise fail. I would encourage you, perhaps even in 2015, to note the faithfulness of God to you. That God will fulfill His promises to you. And as a church, I think we should encourage one another to patiently trust in God while obeying Him. It seems like this is a beautiful picture of the faithfulness of God as this strange old man takes this chubby baby from the startled virgin. It's almost as if Mary and Joseph were not even there. And he holds them with his trembling hands and he begins to utter this prophecy over him, sing this song over him, declare the Messiah is here. In fact, I was teaching my children this story last night, and one of my sons said, he sounds like Gandalf, Daddy. And I don't know if that helps you picture this, but here comes this man full of wisdom, full of insight, and he lifts this baby into his arms and moves us into scene three, Jesus described by Simeon. Note verse 28 again. And he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. You see, Simeon not only has Christ in his arms, he has peace in his soul. He's ready to die. We call this song the Nunc Dimittis, which is Latin for now dismiss. This is the fourth of Luke's nativity songs. We've seen Mary's magnificent 
Zacharias Benedictus, the angels Gloria, and now Simeon's Nuke Dementis. You can let me go now, God. I'm ready to go home. This is what I waited for. This is what I wanted. I'm ready to die. You see, Simeon lived to see the Lord. Simeon lived to hold the Messiah in his arms. I wonder, what do you live for? I mean, what what needs to take place in your life for you to be able to say to God, okay, I'm ready to go home now. I'm ready to depart. I'm ready to come and be with you. How would you answer that question? What needs to happen? In fact, I would encourage you not not maybe to think about what your words would say, how you would answer, but just look at your life. What are you living for? Let your life tell you. How do you spend your leisure and your money? What does your marriage look like? How is your parenting or your work? Simeon would tell us that the true riches in life are found in Christ. Christ gives us purpose and delight. He gives us peace and joy. That we should be excited about Jesus and love Jesus and want other people to know Jesus and to live like Jesus through the power of Jesus for the glory of Jesus. That we should adore Him and praise Him and pray to Him and love Him and trust Him and enjoy Him and follow Him and surrender our complete lives for Him. Simeon says, okay, my life is now complete for I have seen Him. In fact, specifically, he tells us what he has saw in verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You see, he's ready to die because his salvation has come. Note that he doesn't explain that Jesus is part of salvation, but that Jesus is salvation itself. He, he's all anyone needs in order to be saved. In fact, it's not until you have seen Jesus. It is not until you have embraced Jesus by faith that you are ready to die regardless of your age. But if you see Jesus, you take hold of Jesus. You look upon Him in faith, the one who is crucified for our sins and risen from the dead, and it's then that you are ready to die. It's then you are ready to be dismissed from this life and enter the life to come. My eyes have seen your salvation. He goes on to explain who this salvation is for in verse 31, and that you have prepared in the presence of all people. You see, it's salvation for all peoples, all ethne, all nations. It is salvation for the world, for Americans and Mexicans and Ecuadorians and Lakota Indians and Bedini Kurds and Liberians. This is why you gave uh, over $30,000 to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. I think close to over $33,000 that the world may know that there is a Savior and His name is Jesus, that we can send those to take the gospel message, send, take the light of Christ. In fact, that's how Simeon describes Jesus' salvation as this picture of illumination according to verse 32. A light for the revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. He says there's this dark world and Jesus has come to bring light. He's come to show us who God is. He has come to show us how that it is that we can be saved in the midst of our darkness in this dark world. There's darkness all around this world. We have good friends that we got to know this past year who are headed to Central Asia, aren't they? Headed to Iraq. A very dark and incredibly dark place in order to take the light of Christ. And yet there's darkness in our neighborhoods and darkness in our families and in our places of employment that we are to take the illumination of Christ. In fact, he says that he's the glory to your people Israel, but that glory doesn't, uh, isn't confined to Israel. It overflows into the nations. And God promised in Isaiah 49 about the Messiah. It is too light of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. 
I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. This is what Christ is. And Simeon knew it. He is a light of revelation to the Gentiles. It was during World War II that six pilots took off from an aircraft carrier in the North Atlantic to scout out any enemy submarines. While they were gone, the captain was forced to issue a blackout alarm. And the ship went totally dark. The pilots tried to return, but they could not find the ship. They began to radio, give us some light, we're coming home. The radio operator replied, order blackout. I can give you no light. In turn, each of the pilot desperately radioed the same message. Just give me some light and I'll make it. Each time the operator had to radio back. No light. Blackout. In turn, because there was no light on that ship, six pilots went to their graves in the icy North Atlantic. You see, the world needs light. Christ is that only light. It is a dark, dark world. I think 2015 will once again prove this to be true. There is darkness all about. The Bible explains in Ephesians 4, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. Jesus came to open the nation's eyes to who God is and how they might be saved, to reveal the majesty of God and how to be reconciled to Him. And He sends us out to be that light to those who so desperately need it. Simeon praises Jesus for being this salvation. And we get to verse 33 and we see the reaction of his mom and dad as we read. And his father and Mary marveled at what was said about him. They were amazed and confused. And I, I trust rejoicing at all this wonderful prophecy, this song in which this old man is singing about their son. But he keeps speaking, doesn't he? He doesn't stop there. In fact, he's about to say something incredibly hard for them to hear, especially for Mary. It's perhaps for this reason he blesses them, as we see in verse 34, and Simeon blessed them. The picture in my mind is he has baby Jesus in one hand and perhaps lifts up another hand and places it upon the virgin's head, speaking a blessing to her, for he knows that she will need help in the days to come. For he explains that their son is not only the salvation to the world, but he is a stone of stumbling. As we read on in verse 34, he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. You see, not all are going to regard Jesus the same. Some will receive his salvation, the illumination he brings. Others will hate him for it. This has been, once again, predicted from old, as God had declared from the prophet Isaiah, that he would be a stone of offense. Isaiah 8 and verse 14, for instance, he will become a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling, and many shall stumble upon it. They shall fall and be broken. This boy's going to grow up, isn't he? And he's going to bring conflict wherever he goes. He's going to bring acrimony. He's going to bring uh, mocking. He's going to be scoffed at and spoken against and rejected and tripped over throughout his days. In fact, people still trip over Jesus, don't they? 
We could say happy holidays, but let's not wish one another a Merry Christmas because that might offend someone. And we begin to talk about perhaps the virgin birth and people trip over that or that Jesus is the Savior and just not a moral teacher and people trip over that. Or we talk about the cross and the substitutionary atonement and people trip or repentance from sin or the bodily, physical, historical resurrection of Jesus Christ and people trip there. We talk about the exclusivity of Christianity and many, many people trip there. You see, Jesus keeps getting in the way. People can't find their way around him. They keep falling over him. They keep stumbling upon him. He keeps tripping them up as God had promised he would. And those who will trip over him will rise up and oppose him. For Simeon goes on and says, he is not simply a stone of stumbling, but he is a sign to be opposed. For we read in verse 34, and for a sign that is opposed. And said this verse in verse 34 that we get the first hint of what Jesus' ministry is, is, is going to entail. See, up to this point, we've heard a lot about Jesus. We've heard from them. Gabriel, the angel, and Mary, and Zechariah, and, and even the angels who come to the shepherds. And every time they begin to speak about Jesus, it's all glory and greatness, isn't it? It's all about eternal kingdoms and reigning upon the throne and exalting the lonely and horn of salvation to drive out his enemies and liberate his people. He's the son of righteousness. He's glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. All right. There's no opposition presented whatsoever until Simeon opens his mouth and says, you understand something, Mary, that Jesus will be opposed. People will hate your son. He'll stand against him. At the end, they will nail him to a cross and leave him there to die. And it, when it happens, it will be no accident. For you know, this old man says in verse 34, it is to this he has been appointed. Things didn't get out of hand. They oppose him because it has been appointed that this is how it would take place. This is God's plan. Jesus is appointed for the cross. He came to be rejected. Not that he sought rejection, but he came knowing he would be rejected. And when he begins to speak about the sword, of, uh, the sign of opposition, he ends this gentle Simeon turning to Mary. And he pulls out a sword, as it were, saying in verse 35, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. This woman who must have had intense joy over the birth of her son and all that had accompanied him hears from this man that dark days are coming and a sword will pierce you, Mary. Perhaps these are words that returned to her as she knelt by the cross and saw her son upon it. She stared up and saw the hands that she had washed so many times pierced to a beam or looked at the feet who had run so many errands of love for her nailed to that tree. I wonder if these words help carry her through this as she remembered that this is no accident. This is the plan of God that He has brought about in order to redeem us. See, Simeon explains some people are going to hate Him, but not all. Others will cherish Him. Some will rise, He said, and some will fall. In fact, the point is that Jesus is going to bring division. He's going to reveal our hearts, as you note the end of verse 35, so that the thoughts from many hearts would be revealed. You see, what you do with Jesus kind of shows you who you are. It lays your heart open. It bears you 
your soul for God to see. Jesus showed people really what they were like and, and, and what they needed to do. And they didn't like that message. In fact, Romans 1 tells us that every person knows there's a God. Every person knows that that God is worthy of our service and our love and our worship. Romans 1 also tells us we don't like to hear that. And so we hide those truths and we tamper them down. And we don't allow ourselves to think about the fact that we're not right with God. And we're not following God. And we're not obeying God. We ignore our heart. Well, what happens is Jesus shows up and you can't ignore him. You can't ignore the truth that He brings, that we are unreconciled to God, that we are in our sin, that we need forgiveness. And so they could not ignore Him, so they instead hated Him and killed Him. This not only happens to Jesus, but it happens to all who faithfully bear His name. Everyone who walks in the name of Christ will be opposed by this world. You will get the same rejection, perhaps not to the same degree, I hope not, but you will be rejected if you follow Jesus. It's Tim Keller who tells a story of a police officer in New York City who became a Christian. In his precinct, according to Pastor Keller, every cop there would take money from the local pimps to stay away from a corner where their prostitutes uh, did, uh, did their business. Well, this man gave his life to Christ and the pimps came around to hand out their money and he wouldn't take a dollar of it. All the other police officers noticed. In fact, it was just a couple of weeks later that some of the fellow police officers came up to him saying, you, you better watch out. Guys are talking now that you're so pure and you're so good that the next time you call for backup, well, just may be a little slow in arriving. Look, this man could only continue as a police officer for a number more years before he eventually had to resign. Christians will be rejected. It will show up when you shun the gossip in the office or corruption in the business or racism in the neighborhood. You will be opposed. Christianity exposes us. Christ lays us open. This is what Simeon says. And yet those who cherish him will rise. Look back in verse 34. He says that the child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. That word rise is this beautiful word. It's the word anastasis. It means resurrection. It literally says that those who, um, he's appointed for the fall and the resurrection of many in Israel. You see, those who long for Christ, those who follow Christ, will, well, he will raise us up to heaven itself. Much like our sister Anna, as we turn to the fourth scene in this story that Jesus is praised by Anna. Note verse 38. We'll, we'll st- jump back to verse 36, but just note verse 38 when he says, and coming up in that very hour. And so at the very hour that all this was taking place, the moment when Simeon was praising God, giving his prophecy, here comes Anna. Right? So just picture in your mind, this temple complex is massive, huge courtyards, thousands, perhaps tens of thousands will be there every day. We know the Holy Spirit brought Simeon to this couple. And yet now Anna comes. How, how, how does she make her way there? Well, perhaps the Holy Spirit revealed uh, Jesus to her. We don't know. Well, I kind of think that Simeon probably knew Anna. That they there have spent a lot of time in the temple, perhaps praising God together and praying for the Messiah to come. And I wonder if Simeon's holding this baby and recognizes after his prophecy is done, where's Anna? Anna! Anna! Perhaps he called, calling for her as he held the Messiah in his arms. And here comes this, this old woman who has spent all this time fasting and praying, saying, give me that baby. And she bursts forth in prayer and prays. 
Notice her character in verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna. She was the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. So here we learn about her a little bit more than we know about Simeon. Her father's name was Phanuel. She was of the tribe of Asher, one of the northern tribes. And she was elderly like Simeon. In fact, note verse 37. And then as a widow until she was 84. And so that, that you may have a footnote there on verse 37. You know, uh, an alternative way to translate this, or as a widow for 84 years. So well, Anna was probably married at age 13 or 14, be typical. Verse 36 says she was married for seven years, and then she became a widow, perhaps in age 20 or 21. And so she may have been a widow for the next 64 years or even the next 84 years, maybe 104 years old as many people suggest that she is. She lived this life of, of widowhood, this perpetual widowhood for an incredible time. Here comes two people, in other words, who are both at the end of their life and they are still serving God full steam ahead. Anna spends her days in the temple as Luke tells us, reading on in verse 37, she did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And so he tells us she did three things. She, she worshiped, she, she fasted, and she prayed night and day. She was at every worship service, every sacrifice, public sacrifice she would go to there, and she would fast, go without food, as she asked God to help her to, to pray to Him, as she communicated how earnest she was in her prayers. In fact, Luke tells us she prayed night and day, interceding and giving thanksgiving to God. She's not a complicated woman. She never went anywhere. She just hung out in the temple. Right? And, and she just prayed and fasted and worshipped. She never remarried for 64 years, perhaps as long as 84 years. She chose this lifelong, undivided service and worship and devotion to God. God was the center of Anna's life. And she just wanted to live for God and pursue after God. And I think if we look at her life from the American standard, we go, what, what a waste of a life that is. What is she thinking? How, why is she living like this? Of course, not everyone's called to a life like this. But I would suggest to you that this is a life of incredible joy and incredible purpose and value. It was Matthew Henry who on his deathbed at age 52, whose commentary is still used today, 300 years later, perhaps you use it as I do, said to a friend, you have been used to taking notice of the sayings of dying men. This is mine. That a life spent in service of God and communion with Him is the most pleasant life that anyone can live in this world. And I think Anna would agree with that. She there seeking after the Lord. In fact, you notice what she was seeking, what she was praying about, verse 38. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And she, she's been praying about the Messiah, hasn't she? The Redeemer, night and day, fasting. Send the Redeemer, Lord. Send the King. Send our kingdom. And finally, she found Him. And you know, she praised Him. Verse 38 tells us Anna did two things. She prayed to God and proclaimed Christ, just like the shepherds. Remember them? They came and they worshiped Jesus and went away witnessing. And now here's Anna, not speaking to the parents, but speaking to those around her. And then she begins to witness to them, begins to proclaim that, that the Messiah has come, this heart full of thankfulness. And she's comforted by him. I hope you're comforted that by the Messiah, comforted by His love, redeemed by His blood. If you are, people around you will know, just as they knew of, of when Anna encountered the Messiah. 
In fact, she has an intense desire for him. And so does Simeon. I wonder, what do you think about their desire for the Messiah? What do you think about these two interesting characters? I read this story and it seems to me that God wants to be desired. He wants his son to be longed for. This is why the Holy Spirit, I think, came and told Simeon. This is why the Bible gives us these two individuals to show us how we properly respond to Jesus. In fact, you think about what we know about Jesus compared to what they know about Jesus. Right? How much more should we desire him? I mean, they never saw Christ's compassion on the outcast and his power over creation as you and I have. They never heard his words of authority and wisdom and love as we have. They never saw the blind receive sight or the lame walk or the lepers cleanse or the deaf hear or the dead raised or the poor evangelize as we have. They never saw him comfort the sinful and rebuke the proud as we have. Never saw his commitment in Gethsemane. Never saw his crucifixion for our sin as we have. They never heard him say, today you'll be with me in paradise or it is finished as we have. They never saw the empty tomb. They never saw him risen from the grave, conquering sin and death forevermore. We have seen it all. And yet now he's gone again, isn't he? leaving you and I to wait. Much like Simeon and Anna. I wonder, do we wait with the same longing? The same earnestness? I think we would do well in 2015 to long for Jesus, to yearn for Him, to desire Him, to look for Him. We who have seen His glory and heard His words and experienced His mercy and watched Him die by faith and raised from the dead, shall we long for Him any less than they? Friends, no. A thousand times no. Let that not be true of Hamilton Baptist Church. Let us long for His coming. I know others will say it's been too long. Generations have passed. It's been thousands of years. We should better settle in. It's not going to happen anytime soon. Well, go tell that to Simeon. He waited to the very end. Go tell that to Anna and 104. I trust they heard the same thing. All I know is that my Messiah at the end of my Bible in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 7 said, Behold, I am coming soon. And in verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon. And again in verse 20, Surely I am coming soon. In which the church responds in prayer, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Is that your prayer? That He would come. That we would long for His return, the redemption of creation, that we might be with Him forevermore. Of course, friends, we don't need to wait for His return to seek Him or to pursue Him or to commune with Him. I wonder as we end this morning what you have resolved to do in 2015. What are your commitments? Lose weight? Exercise more? Get organized? What of your God? What of your Lord? What of your Redeemer? How will you pursue Him? How will you learn more about Him? How will you conquer the sin in your life? How will you share Him more faithfully? How will you grow in your longing and love for Him? Perhaps He too is worthy of your consideration. Perhaps He too is worthy of your resolve. Father in heaven, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for our brothers and sisters. Anna and Simeon who long for Him. May we long for Him too. Help us to seek Him. Help us to pursue Him. 
Help us to live joyful lives of peace and obedience because of Him. Do this work in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.